for minutes anyway. That was a bit... <laughs> oh, shoot, it's me. Um, so good. I, I was just thinking um, during that quiet time, normally I'm kind of... or Not normally, but a lot of the times I'm sort of doing it. They're so, they're so great to be able to um, engage in those things. And I just thought... I'll tell you about my quiet time for that's there. I was sort of looking down thinking, gosh, I love my new shoes. Aren't they great? I hadn't noticed that little thing. But, oh, no, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be thinking about things. Oh, did I? I wonder if I've got enough avocado for dinner tonight. Yeah, no, no, no. And so, I mean, like, that's, that's, that's okay. And so if that's you as well, like there's really these quiet times, they're a discipline. And like any discipline, it just takes work. And so, and there's nothing wrong with thinking about your new shoes or thinking about my new shoes. But, um, but it's just that sense of coming, the discipline comes in coming back again to the Father, coming back again to the moment of, of what it is he, he might be saying, what it is he, he wants to, um, wants to um, be with you, not necessarily even do. I think, I think Dad, you're spot on in 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 your um, interpretation of what the Spirit is wanting to do is, you know, like these things aren't another thing about us having to, to do something. They're about really just being in the presence of the Father. So we're going to carry on um, in, or I'm going to carry on. Well, we know we're going to carry on in our, our part two of our Running Father series. And firstly, I just wanted to thank Sherilyn for her gracious giving up of her, her slot this morning. Um, she was meant to be speaking, so she's going to do her parable series, her parable um, next, next week. But it also got me to thinking about this particular series and, and really... Um, the, the incredible depth of experience and perspective we have in, in incredible people being able to come and to speak in this series, but really has been throughout. And, and I think we should, we should celebrate that. We should celebrate the amount of incredible people we've got um, who, who give of their time and their energy and of their passions and of their perspective and interpret God's word, dig into it, and then, and then give it out um, humbly, and and so and I think we are all the richer for it. So so you want to use this opportunity to say thank you to all those people who have been part of the series um, and really series to come as well. So if you have your Bibles, let's or a device with a Bible on it. Let's go back to Luke 15. Um, I have said for me personally, this has been just such a special part of, of Scripture for me. It has been something that I have kind of gone back to so many times. It's one of the things that has really um, captured my heart of, of a view of who God is and what He's like. I have wrestled with it. For me personally, I have kind of identified with it's some of its characters really, really closely and then realized what a self-revelation that is for me and how I need to sort of carry on in the, in the work of, of growing in a disciple. And, and I love particularly, I think what really first captured me about this was in, I think, very early on in, in the study that I did or started um, years ago was a little bit of reading a papal paper on Luke 15. And I know it didn't start there, but it was the first time I ever seen it, that this portion of scripture it has been known and is known as the gospel within the gospel. 
that you can take this Luke 15, and really it is a condensed um, version of the gospel, of all that Jesus said in the coming of the kingdom, of this is what the gospel of Jesus is, or the gospel of God's kingdom is. This is found in here. And the key, and it's key for us, I'm going to do a little bit of revision as, I, as we power through, and I want to read it again, just in case you weren't here last week. Um, but the key of this Luke 15 is you have got, I feel like you've got to go back to the beginning and remember, I guess, the why of, of this parable. And it's the why of the parable is found in verses 1 and 2. And it's this, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often, I love that, notorious sinners. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. My Bible has an exclamation point. You know, even to eat with them. So, so it is that. It is that mindset, it's that kind of this, this is the why of Jesus goes into this, these three incredible stories in Luke 15, which all do link in. For time, we're not going to be able to look at them, but, but in your own time, make sure when you read this and when you, when you sort of dig into these parables, particularly these three, the lost um, the lost sheep, the, the guy who leaves the 99 sheep and goes looking for the one, the woman who turns her house upside down looking for her lost coin, and this one that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, they all are designed to link together. And it is why I think it's so important, why I think it is the gospel within the gospel, is Jesus is kind of like, he's screaming, this is important. Not literally, but he's, he, is, he is really wanting us to make sure we do not miss the incredible message that are wrapped up in these three parables. And so let's go back to um, verse 11, and I'm going to read it through. To illustrate this point further, Jesus told them this story. This is just following on from those other two about the, the man with the, leaving the hundred and the woman turning her house upside down with the silver coins. But to illustrate the point even further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. Remember from last week, he was not asking for an inheritance. And, and we might think, oh, what does that make a difference of? Well, it makes a huge difference in the first century context because an inheritance had relational connection. If you wanted your inheritance, that meant that you were still, you were still accepting your, your, um, your relational expectations of it. To, to, have, to accept an inheritance was to, to keep working, to be part of the family, to you had responsibilities in the outworking of that inheritance. He wasn't asking for that. What he was saying is, stuff you, stuff the family, give me my money, I want out of here, and I want nothing to do with you. And all that family held. And so, so the father agreed and, 
and divided the wealth between his sons. Again, this was probably the first shock of that first century hearers because the appropriate response was to angrily refuse that son's request and then give him a hiding to end all hidings so that he would never be stupid enough ever to ask, never be so disrespectful and shameful to ever ask such a thing ever again, to beat it out of him. That's what everyone would have expected. And that would have been appropriate and right in their culture, in their context. Some of you are looking, is it not now? No, no, absolutely not. (laughs) So shock, to the shock of everyone, the father agreed and divided his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this, this younger son packed up all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. There there he wasted all his money in wild living. And again, I don't know if I mentioned it last week, you know, this is just the heaping of shame. So when the property would have been divided, it wouldn't have been in money, it would have been in land, it would have been in property, that kind of thing. And so the public humiliation of the father of the household in the son just pawning off what would have been centuries of of property would have meant so much for for the lowest the the um to just really a cut cut rate price whatever you offer me and that would have heaped the most unbelievable shame on the family on the father and so he took it and he went. About that time, his, about the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept across the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Again, we'll probably know like pigs, lowest of the low, dirtiest of the dirty, just awful, culturally that is. Um, The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, and and I'm just going to pause here for a minute because a lot of times we, we... I feel like we, we kind of misinterpret that as being like a deep soul repentance. I don't think that's deep soul repentance. I think that is, I'm just friggin' hungry, and this is a really crappy place to be. And I know there's a better place somewhere. So he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he still, he still has no grasp of the father's heart for him. That's where I don't think we can interpret that first turning as like a deep repentance. Repentance can really can just be translated as turning. Like he just turned and started heading home. It wasn't that somehow everything came to light. It all, it all sorted out. All his misconceptions were wiped away and all of a sudden he saw clearly again. Obviously he didn't because of what we just read. 
He still has no idea of the Father's heart and desire for relationship with him. He has no idea of the Father's desire for him to be be in sonship with him. The relentless pursuit of relationship that, that is the Father. And so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, again, this is probably my favorite scripture of of just about anything else. And and for me, I just think I never want to view God outside of this. I, I want more, but I never want it to be less than this is while he was a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with love, filled with compassion, he ran to his son and he embraced him and he kissed him. And and the translation says he didn't just kiss him once, he kissed him all over. He didn't stop. I love that picture. He didn't stop kissing. He, He didn't let go of his stinky, dirty, rotten, Big crap smelling sun. I grew up on in a rural area and that and I know what pig smells like and it is not nice. But just take that as a view of the Father. This is Jesus, who's God, saying, if you want to know what God looks like, this is it. I want to wrestle with that for the till the day I die, that that's what God is like. You can see I haven't lost my passion for this scripture over the last few days. His son said to him, still not getting it. You know, like still have no idea. Because he starts on his speech. His son says to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick. Again, I can just so picture like the son mid-speech and the father isn't even listening to a word of it. Like, can you tell that like not a single word went in? Like he's just, they're on completely different pages. And so the father says quick to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring and put it on his finger, sandals for his feet. And kill the calf that we have we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine has, was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost and now he is found. So let the party begin. And then verse 25, this is where we're going to pick up this morning. Is Meanwhile, the older son was in the field working. I said last week, he wouldn't have actually been working. He would have been overseeing the work that is done. He didn't like wasn't out there getting dirty himself. So meanwhile, while the older son was in the field working, meanwhile, this older son was in the field working. When he returned home, he heard the music and the dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he told him, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go inside. His father came out and he begged him, but he replied, All these years I have slaved for you, and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to. 
And in all of that time, you never gave me even a young goat for a feast with, so I could feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours came back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, Look, my dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. I, like I said, I want to pick up in verse, or in verse 25, really in what is the climax of this parable and really the others to come, the others that were there. Again, because we have to think about the why of who Jesus was telling this story to. It was a group of people who had no idea um, what the Father was like. And so, so really we find the climax of the story in this kind of, this, this interaction between the older son and the father in the courtyard while the party has already started. It's already take, gone off. And so, so this older son in his angry response at the news that, of, of why, you know, what was happening, that they had killed the fatted calf, Again, so much concern around this calf. But um, they'd killed the fatted calf, but really, and, and that, they, that he had been received. One of the translations says, your father has received your brother in peace, in, in shalom. And so what the anger of the older brother was all about is it wasn't just that his brother had come home, it is that his father had restored him to his, to his previous place. That his father had had given him, had called him son again. That he was already reconciled. That's why the older son was angry. That reconciliation had already happened. In the father's eyes, that son was had never been anything but his son. And all of the privileges, all of all of what it was to be a son was on him, was his. And once again, we are confronted by, by the very costly price that the Father is willing to pay, happy to pay, to love, for, for the love of His Son. That the Father in this story, over and over again we see, is a Father who is willing to, to go through pain and suffering to hold on to relationship. To hold on to sonship above everything else. And in this, in this climax of this story, now we see it's the older son's time to heap insult and shame on his father. So, so in the context of where we're at in this party, where we're at in this celebration, that older son had a really valuable part to play in, in the first century context. And we don't know it, but all of Jesus' hearers would have. Is the, the responsibility in a party like that for the firstborn son was to kind of 
kind of stand and almost act like the the head waiter in a way. And and it was to it was to communicate to all the people that were there, but 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 not necessarily sorry as a servant. He was there to kind of stand and oversee and kind of make sure everything was happening. He was to to engage in conversation with with the guests. To, and all of it was to con was to communicate to everyone that was there is is the honor and and favor of this family on them as guests. It was such an important part of the story. And so this older son and I'm sorry, and so including what guest of the party or what person who was there, his younger brother. Can you kind of feel the can you relate? I think that's what I love about this story slash hate about it is, man, if that were me, I've got I've to communicate love and honor and respect to him? After all he's done? Kenneth Bailey in his book, which has just been so amazing which i highly recommend and and andrew's brought four more three more over to me as well this guy obviously takes loving this parable to a whole nother level but but incredible insights in it but i wanted to just read this quote um, that he talks about in this area is the younger son has been reinstated through the costly grace that is in violation of all of of the traditional village honor so so the grace that, that the father showed his son is in complete violation of everything they've ever been told, of the way they do life, of the way they interact with one another. And the older son can easily feel that his father has dishonored him and his family in the eyes of the, of the community. Reconciliation and restoration without penalty paid by the offender is too much for him to understand and accept. I'm going to read that again. Because reconciliation and restoration without a penalty paid, are there not within us something that needs to see bad people get a hiding? Like, we don't want it for ourselves necessarily, but some of us do. You know, some of us just feel like we need to get a hiding. But this story is saying that there's something about the father that doesn't. So reconciliation and restoration without penalty paid by the offender is too much for him to understand or accept. For certain types of people, grace is not only amazing, it's infuriating. I think it's really important for us to recognize that there may be parts of us, you know, within us, but also within us, that are still like that first century village type of culture. That we still, in many ways, can function in that shame, honor type of mindset. That we want and need God sometimes to get angry and dish out a hiding. 
Just like his younger brother, this son is behaving in a way that that really the 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 appropriate first century response, that is, in staying out of refusing to come into the party, that again is heaping shame and dishonor onto the father. And and yet again, our first century hearers would have thought, okay, the appropriate response of the father is to either now it's almost even worse than the older son. I used to love I used to kind of think, yeah, I'm like the I'm like the older son. I've always been good. You know, I've had you know, rebellious older and younger siblings. I was always the good one. Like, until you, and you, and you relate to it, until you realize what it's saying, and then you deep down know, oh, it relates even more. Like, like you so don't get it. Like the fact that this refusal in this courtyard, in a public space that everyone would have seen, is more shameful, is more dishonoring than his younger brother. Because everyone can see it. That he's got such a valuable, important role, and he's refusing to do it. And so, so again, this first century thinking would have been either now, in public, the father would have angrily refused and punished his son, um, or he'd wait till later. You'll keep, you know? Some people have parent. That, does that bring back some parental rememberings? <laughs> You'll keep, you know, that terrible, terrible, wonderful parental tool of like anticipated punishment. Leo, you wait till I get home. Um, but yet again, what does the father do? The father engages and tries once again, pays the the penalty, the price, the incredible to have the incredible, painful price of, of trying to reason with his son, of, of inviting him again for the second time in really what is such a short amount of time. The father, the father runs to his son in a way. He begs him to come in. He endures the shame and the, and the self-emptying love to reconcile. The father loves both of his sons indiscriminately. He gives himself equally to both of them, irrespective of their actions. The same self-emptying sacrificial love is demonstrated visibly and dramatically in the same day to both of his sons for, who have different kinds of needs, who, who in very different ways but in the same 
just have no idea what their father is about. You know, for for us today, this the older son's unwillingness to to be in relationship with his brother to um, you know we think oh well you know that's kind of yeah fair kind of fair enough he was pretty awful we we kind of reason that away and, and I think there's such a valuable lesson for us today like in a first century context like so that older son didn't go in for one reason that, that his younger brother was there and to go into that party was to recognize was to become to live with him to be in relationship with him. And then that first century context where they all lived together, can you see that to not be in relationship with his brother meant he couldn't be in relationship with his father? Do you see how physically they couldn't, that couldn't work? You couldn't, you couldn't live in relationship with your brother and be in relationship with your father at the same time. It just actually couldn't work. I wonder if we need to get that today. This parable is tough. Like, I wonder if we need to be reminded that it's not an option for us to hate our brother, for it to be in to be out of to be in broken relationship with our brother and our sister, and somehow still think it's it's appropriate and okay and, and it works to be in relationship with a father, that the two can happily coexist. Your faces are looking a lot more like the faces of that first century, or what I imagine in the first century years. This is tough. Doesn't it add perspective to Jesus' teaching when he talked to his disciples about prayer? And he says, when you pray, pray this. Um, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Could I reinterpret it this way? God, please keep pouring yourself out in love for me. To be keep God, keep paying the price for to be so that I can be in relationship with you. As I keep pouring out, as I keep suffering to be in relationship with fill in the blank. With our two brothers, there are, there are really two types of sin, you know, and that's kind of like that word has got lots of, <laughs> lots of strings and means lots of things to a, lots of people. But, but there are two types of sins in our brothers, and the one is the sin of law-breaking. We see that quite easily in, in the first son. But the second one is this, in the older son, is the sin of law-keeping, One brother breaks relationship with a father by failing to fulfill the expectations of or, or the keeping of the law or whatever you want to call it. He breaks relationships by doing everything wrong. The older son breaks relationship by doing everything right. Doesn't he? You know, and just like that, 
the parable's over. And there's so much unsaid. There's so much out there. Like, what happened? Did he go in? Did he stay out? You know, did they finish the calf or was there leftovers? You know, like, there's so much of this story that is left unsaid. And I think that's the point. And, and whatever you imagine this story to end is really self-revealing. Take note of it. However, think about how do you imagine that that conversation in the courtyard between an angry older son and a and a pleading father with with the other son, you know, mid-party. What happens next? See, this parable is not a delivery system for an idea or an ideology. I love this. Rather, this parable, and actually all the parables that Jesus told, it is like a house in which the reader or the listener is invited to take up residence. You are encouraged to move in, to look out onto the world through the points of view of this story. Just like a house that has a variety of windows and rooms, this parable too has a variety of messages and meanings. Again, quote from Bailey. So, so move in. Move into it. What happens next? In my last three minutes, I just, I felt like as I was kind of finishing it off, I'd love to kind of just transition slightly into a bit of like kind of vision casting or, or my hope for Mahering Vineyard in, in light of all of this is, is one of the things that, you know, where the father ran, one of the reasons why the father ran to meet his son was because, was to avoid, um, to get to him before the rest of the townspeople did. Because in the culture of the day, it was completely appropriate and expected that, um, he'd be given a hiding. He'd, he'd be, he would pay severely for the shame and the disrespect that he caused his father, but actually caused the entire village. And so one of the things I think about, and for me personally, I never want to be one of those townspeople for a prodigal who's returning home. I never want God to have to run ahead of me to save someone from me. And, and when I, by meaning me, I mean us. And by us, I mean the church. And then to put a positive spin, and I look at it and think, I, I, so it's kind of like, I don't want to be that, but what do I want to be? And I was kind of thinking, God, I want to be, I want to be one of those servants that God says, and I know it falls apart a little bit because we're not servants, we're all sons, but, but in my mind, 
the church. What could the church be? Do you know what I want the church to be? I want the church to be those people who run back to the house, who are out of breath, who pick up the robes and get to be the ones who run back and put the robes on those prodigals, put the robes on those people, carrying rings and, and robes and sandals for people. I want to be, be front and center when, when, when the people out there get confronted with the fact of this is the Father and this is how the Father sees you. That no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, they have never been anything but a son or a daughter. And I want to be front and center to be one of the ones who gets to put that on them. Gets to see their face. And that, and I want to be one of the servants who gets busy about getting the party ready. Do you know? Like, how great would it be? How, I just feel like it would be us functioning in the very essence of what church is, is if we're at a place where we're ready to celebrate. That's us. Why don't we stand? I, I just want to um, Father, I thank you so much for for this story. I thank you for the hope that that it has interwoven throughout it. And I, I just pray now, Father, where that hope kind of comes in contact with with us as people that sometimes find it difficult. Like those places where, where grace becomes, it just makes us mad. God, I, I thank you that you would, or not would, I thank you that you are a father who still comes out and meets us in the courtyard and calls us into the party. I feel like, uh, Father, I pray for those of us here in the room right now and those who, are, who may be listening in a time in the future who actually can't imagine the older son walking into the party and taking on his role and, and a family fully restored and reconciled and two sons fully embrace the love of their father and a father who, who just is beaming with love for his sons. If that's too far for us to go, Father, would you meet us and call us forward? God, would you remind us again of the power of the earth-shattering, life-changing power of love and kindness and goodness? 
that your reconciliation, your love is so powerful and so able to reconcile that punishment need not even be in the picture. Father, I pray that as we go forward into our week ahead and all of its busyness, God, would you keep reminding us? Would you keep bringing us back to this courtyard? Would we be able to see the world around us through the windows of this story? Would we be able to see the tax collectors and the, and the notorious sinners of our age, of our time, through the windows of this story? In Jesus' name, amen. Wonderful.